Radio. This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. For nearly a year now, I've had the privilege of living and working in Grand Canyon National Park. In late June, I was among some 1,100 attendees participating in one of the four nights of the 24th annual Grand Canyon Star Party on the South Rim. Astronomers from across the country operating nearly 50 telescopes, all set up behind the visitor center, invited folks to get a glimpse of the planets in our own solar system, as well as nebulae and star clusters that are millions upon millions of light years distant from us. Three nightly constellation tours introduce the stories that cultures around the world have believed are to be found illustrated in the night sky. The evening took me back to my childhood in Massachusetts, where I spent many, many nights out under the stars, looking up at a resplendent Milky Way. If I were to return to the town of my birth today, it's unlikely that I would see that Milky Way. Eight out of ten Americans today won't ever live where they can see our own galaxy, our own solar system, because two-thirds of Americans and Europeans no longer experience real night, that is, real darkness. And nearly all of us live in areas considered polluted by artificial light. In this episode of On the Road with Mac and Molly, we'll hear from Paul Bogard, author of The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. In his book and in this program, we travel with Paul around the globe to find night where it lives, showing exactly what we've lost, what we have left, and what we might hope to regain. We'll hear in this episode how the loss of night is not only a loss of beauty above us. Exposure to artificial light at night has been cited as a factor in health concerns ranging from poor sleep to cancer. Light pollution is also threatening the health of the world's ecosystems, as everything from reproduction cycles to migration patterns are adversely affected by artificial light at night. But there is hope. Light pollution is one kind of pollution we can readily fix. And Paul's panoramic tour of the night, from its brightest spots to the darkest skies we have left, give us every reason to flip the switch tonight. When we return from the following commercial messages, Paul Bogard will join us. So please sit, stay. We'll be right back after this pause. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly. 
This is your host, Donna Haleson, and joining us now from his family's cabin in northern Minnesota is Paul Bogard, author of The End of Night. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Some of the lines offered by reviewers on the jacket of your book provide, I think, some good starting points for us today. One writes, Darkness is among the many things we have lost gradually without mourning. Paul Bogart offers a brilliantly illuminating history and a badly needed reminder that we have been blind to the death of night. Another says we burned so many lights that for most people in the industrialized world, true light no longer exists. Paul Bogart tells us how this happened and why it matters. This is an important and beautifully narrated journey into our endangered heritage, the sleep, silvery dark of night. A third reviewer speaks of the book as an alarming parable for our time, the disintegration of what is natural into what is artificial, and the consequences of this erosion are beyond sobering. Well, you know, as one who has experienced the most glorious starry nights, as well as nights with an airiest star to be seen in the sky, I really just couldn't agree more. I wonder if we might launch into our conversation with a word picture of the state of night. Would you tell us, please, what percentage of the world no longer experiences a truly dark night and how this might be a parable for our time, the disintegration of what is natural into what is artificial? Sure. You know, one uh, picture people can uh, envision right away, I think, are the pictures from the photographs from NASA of the Earth at night that show the spread of artificial lights all over the globe. And it gives folks a really good idea of what we're talking about. There are, you know, areas of the globe that are still naturally dark, you know, the oceans and some of the middles of the continents and places that haven't yet had artificial or electric light. But for any place that um, has been, as we say, industrialized, we've lost natural night. And the statistics that astronomers use are that some 99% of Americans and Western Europeans, for example, no longer experience real darkness. Two-thirds of us never, we don't live where we can see the Milky Way, for example. So we've really lost what is natural. And I think that review that mentioned um, the disintegration of what is natural into what is artificial is, it just speaks to this, how for most of us, most Americans do not experience a natural night, a natural darkness. We live under artificial light with all sorts of different costs and ramifications. I'm someone who grew up in a part of the country where as a little girl, I could look up and see the Milky Way. So I I grew up just sort of north of Boston. And uh, recently here, and I'm now at the Grand Canyon in the National Park, we had a star party where right after the full moon, we could see this extraordinary display of stars that just went on forever and ever. It was just absolutely glorious. I came across in the book the information that you shared about the Bortle scale, and I wondered if you could share with us some of the easily recognizable locations in the world where they might rank on that. Sure. Uh, For folks who don't know, the Bortle scale is a nine-point scale that basically measures levels of darkness. And so nine would be our brightest places and uh, down to one being our darkest places, those naturally dark areas I was talking about. 
any major city all over the world, places like Las Vegas, New York City, Times Square, Tokyo, Madrid, uh, any of the, you know, all around the world, a major city is going to be a nine. And uh, those just those places that I was talking about, the, the middle of the ocean, maybe the middle of the outback would be a one. A couple of things that stand out to me with the Bortle scale, though, are that most Americans now live their lives in levels five and above and rarely or never experience darkness any more natural, any darker than, than a five on that nine point scale. And when I started the book, I talked to the Park Service about where I could go to experience a level one on the Bortle scale. And <laughs> the guy, uh, the first guy I, I talked to, Chad Moore, who's head of the night sky team for the Park Service, laughed and, and told me I should probably go to Australia. So you get to places like the Grand Canyon, or and I spent a lot of time out west with the book. You can get down to a two, but oftentimes a three, and very rarely uh, a one. Well, how is light pollution defined? It's the overuse and misuse of artificial light at night. And it's important to say, you know, that light is not bad. Light isn't the problem. Light is good and we're going to have light. It's just what we're talking about here is how we use it. And, and too often we're just using too much of it and in ways that really aren't very helpful to us. Well, can you give us an idea of where artificial light is coming from? You, uh, you mentioned about the collected glow. And from what sources are we seeing that collected glow? Yeah, the number one sources are, uh, the main sources are um, streetlights, parking lots, gas stations. In cities, obviously, buildings that have lights on them, uh, stadiums if they're lit up at night. But then if you get out into the country, you know, if you get out someplace where you're hoping that it's dark, too often we have what are called security lights or yard lights, these big, bright, uh, and unshielded lights that just shine for miles and miles and miles. And, you know, if they were in the middle of the city, they would be lost. But when they're out in the otherwise darkness, that's light pollution right there. That's, they're way too bright. Well, how has light pollution, and you know, if we can just center on that for a minute, how has light pollution spread? How is it spreading? And can you give us a sense of uh, what is projected in the way of unchecked light pollution into the future? Yeah, the thing about light pollution is that it, it spreads fairly quickly over the last, you know, few decades. I mean, if you go back in this country just 50 years ago, uh, you'd be experiencing a much darker country. And a lot of the people in my audiences, if they're over a certain age, they know what I'm talking about. But the folks who are, say, under 30, 35, 40, really don't know what I'm talking about because they haven't known a natural night. And light pollution is one of those things that it's growing rapidly, but it's growing just slowly enough that it's hard to notice. So when people, uh, astronomers tell me that, for example, the, the light at gas stations and parking lots has grown about 10 times uh, as bright as it was just 20 years ago, if that happened you know, overnight, I think people would be alarmed. They would at least notice for sure. But since it's happened over 20 years, we just think it's normal. Well, what are some of the arguments that are put forth to uh, for us to have more light at night? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is that most people just don't even think about it. They think that this is just how it is, you know. And if you start to talk about, you know, maybe not having so much light, then people start to think about it a little bit. And the first reaction that comes is we need all this light for safety and security. 
And that's a, you know, a pretty complex subject that we certainly can talk about. But the easy answer is we really don't need all this light for safety and security. Light at night certainly can help us be safe and secure, but ever more light does not make us ever more safe and secure. There's a photograph that you share in the book, and you or two photographs that you put side by side. And one shows, the, maybe I can just leave it at that and let you explain how you set forth this argument against uh, too much light versus the right kind of light, as it applied to the whole idea of, a, of an intruder. Yeah, those are uh, really remarkable photographs. Um, I was lucky to have them find them for the book. Basically, it's it's a shot of the same scene. It's a uh, yard in Tucson, Arizona. And in the first scene, you have something everybody is familiar with, which is a really bright, quote unquote, security light. It's, you know, shining into the sky, it's shining into your eyes, it's blasting light all over the place. What you don't see, though, is the bad guy. And what The second photograph shows the only difference is that the photographer holds his hand up to block the light. And what he does when he does that is he mimics shielding that light. So it's not even turning the light off. It's just shielding the light so the light can only go downward where we need it, not into the sky, not into our eyes, not anywhere else. And when he does that, you see the bad guy standing at the the gate, as it were, right behind the light. He's there in the first photograph, but you can't see him because this bright security light is making it too hard for you to see. So it's a really remarkable photographic evidence of this, you know, what one guy I talked to in London told me who's in charge of security for this very tough borough of London. He said, we were sitting at his desk and he said, you know, if this light that was is on my desk was bright enough, I couldn't see you across my desk. So it, this idea that ever brighter lights make us ever safer just doesn't make sense once you start to think about it. Well, this idea of the ever brighter lights really not making us more safe and more secure brings us to maybe a a little bit on the fear of darkness. And I wonder if you might center there for a moment on whether or not you think this is a natural or a learned fear. And maybe you could take us through some of the history of the view of darkness as seen in some of the religions and mythologies in cultures around the world. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, what I like to say about fear of the dark is, first of all, that I admit to being afraid of the dark, (laughs) which, uh, you know, people kind of get a kick out of sometimes that the guy who wrote the book about night and darkness admits to that. But I think what I'm saying is that it's a perfectly natural thing to be afraid of the dark, especially if you're in a new place, a place that you're not familiar with, you can't see very well, maybe you're alone, you know, why wouldn't you be afraid? That's nothing to be ashamed of. I think what I say that's a really unnatural, it is a natural fear to be afraid of the dark. And I think what is unnatural is to then try to push it away with with light, to try to somehow erase the darkness and, and push it away. And I think what you see through out history, though, is exactly that, an attempt to push away the darkness because of our our fear of the dark. And so you have things like there was a competition, this is one of my favorite stories, a competition in the 1889 World's Fair in Paris for a tower to celebrate the World's Fair. And thankfully for us, the Eiffel Tower won and is still there. But a close uh, runner-up to that was something called the Sun Tower, which was designed to try to I have so much light that it would make the uh, night over Paris disappear. So that's the kind of thing that goes way back. And if you look at religion, I think 
contrary to what people actually think, darkness and night are vitally important. Yes, light is important as well, but darkness is important and always has been important for religions and myths. The truth is that to live a full human life, you will go through periods of darkness and religions and myths have understood this for a long time and have, in fact, valued that darkness as part of what makes a, a whole human life. Shifting gears just a little bit here, I wonder, well, actually another history lesson here, if you could uh, take us through the history of electric light in one country, and perhaps we might look at the United States. How did we get started on this whole path of artificial light at night, and, and what were some of the key elements that brought us to where we are today? Well, of course, we went from uh, gaslight to, well, we went from oil light to gaslight to electric light. And the first electric light came to the U.S. Uh, at the end of the 19th century and began to spread mostly on the East Coast. One of the remarkable things I found in the book uh, and talk about in the book is how, you know, until the Rural Electrification Act in 1935, there were just vast parts of the country that did not have electricity, that did not have electric light at night and only had kerosene lamps. From there, though, you know, especially with the spread of the automobile, it has spread and street lights. It has electric light has spread all over the country so that there's everywhere you go, you see electric lights. And what we have now, which is really interesting that folks might not know, is we're moving from electric light to electronic light. And so you start to see People have probably heard of LEDs, the light-emitting diodes, which really offer great promise in terms of controlling light pollution, but could also bring great peril if it just means that there's we just use the efficiency and the technology to put up even more light. Where today do you find the brightest beam of light? Well, the brightest beam of light in the world is in Las Vegas uh, at the Luxor Casino. It's actually uh, 36 different spotlights that are uh, shining together to form one beam coming out of the pyramid at the Luxor. One of the things about Las Vegas that I learned, which I think is pretty remarkable, is that Las Vegas as a city is not one of the brightest cities in the world. There are many cities that are that are significantly brighter than it just because they're bigger and they have more light. But when I talked to the guys at NOAA who take the uh, photographs of Earth at night, they said that the brightest pixel of any of their photographs is the Las Vegas Strip, and uh, that includes the Luxor Casino Beam. I think uh, it's true that both Las Vegas and Grand Canyon can be seen from space, but for very different reasons, yes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder how, you, if you, if at all, I guess, would the fact of that beam stand as a symbol of the problem that is light pollution? Well, I think it does. I mean, I think that, it, you know, it, it, like all of Las Vegas, it's kind of uh, an extreme. You know, it's in some ways, it's, you might say, a symbol. I don't want to <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like saying, screw you, darkness, we're going to be as bright as we want to. But in many respects, I think that Las Vegas, as I said, as an extreme, isn't really the problem. The problem that I'm more concerned with, actually, is, you know, the places where most of us live. Because I think Las Vegas is going to be that way. But our suburbs and our cities where we're living, our countryside, that's where we can really focus on wasteful lights and shield our lights and reduce light pollution in a meaningful way. What would you like to see in terms of light at night? What has to happen? 
Well, I think it starts with awareness. You know, I think, as I said before, a lot of people, um, especially younger people, have grown up in a world where it just is bright at night and they don't know any different. They don't know what a real night sky looks like, for example, and they have no idea how important darkness is for animals, for wildlife, for the environment. And that's what End of Night, my book, is all about, is trying to erase that awareness. Because once we start to think about and understand how important darkness is for our physical, mental, spiritual health, how important it is for the environment, how wasteful we are with light, how we don't need all this light, then I think people can start to take action. And they can do that on a personal level by um, turning off their lights at night or certainly by only buying lights that are shielded so the light is just going down, not into their neighbor's bedroom or into the sky. Um, we can do that as uh, communities by having lighting ordinances, rules that give us guidelines about how to use light at night so we're not being wasteful or dangerous. Um, and we can even do that as there are statewide or citywide initiatives to control the use of light at night. And I think, you know, by control, I don't mean telling people that they can't have light. I just mean, let's not be wasteful. Let's not try to light up the night sky, for example. That's not doing anyone any good. So there's a lot we can do. And I like to be optimistic about it. I think this is a problem that we can really do something about. You say that's true of all of the different ways in which human beings may be polluting the world. One that's really perhaps the easiest to immediately address would be light pollution. And one of the things I think that you really go after in the book is not just what we are losing when we lose a night sky in terms of beauty, but also how we as human beings, and of course, you know, in the latter half of the show, we'll be talking about the rest of the population of the earth, but how we as human beings are harmed by this light at night. And, you know, not just in terms of sleep, but other concerns as well. Can you address that, please? Sure. I mean, when it comes to uh, physical health, what scientists are finding is that artificial light at night is having some serious um, effects on us. And I think it makes a lot of sense when you think about the fact that life on Earth evolved with bright days and dark nights. And we, and as human beings, have never had a chance to evolve to get used to light at night. So you mentioned the sleep. One of the things scientists are finding is that it's light at night is disrupting our sleep and contributing to sleep disorders. It's confusing our circadian rhythms, those 24-hour internal rhythms that orchestrate our body's health. And then probably most troubling is that it's impeding the production of the hormone melatonin. Melatonin is only produced in the darkness. And what researchers are finding now is that if our bloodstream doesn't have enough melatonin in it, it's an increased risk for breast and prostate cancer. So the World Health Organization now considers uh, working the night shift, for example, a probable carcinogen because of all these things I've mentioned. So it's not as though, you know, as recently as 1980, we thought artificial light at night doesn't have any effect on us. But what we're finding is that, in fact, it does. Let's take a break. When we return, we'll be focusing on the effects of night lighting on wildlife, on ecosystems. So please sit, stay. We'll be right back after this pause. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Dogs leave fur wherever they go. It collects all over the home. There are many tools designed to stop dog hair spreading, but their effectiveness varies, and afterwards you have to clean the tool, then the floor. 
With the Dyson Groom Tool, you simply deploy the bristles, then gently brush the coat. Loose fur is removed, while dead skin and allergens are captured by the vacuum. And to clean up, you simply release the trigger. To get this awesome Dyson Groom Tool, go to DysonDeals.com. That's DysonDeals.com. Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly. I'm your host, Donna Haleson, and with us today is Paul Bogard, author of The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Well, as promised before the break, we want to move on to a discussion of the effects of night lighting on wildlife, on ecosystems. So, Paul, I wonder if we might start with uh, considering what percentage of vertebrates and invertebrates are nocturnal or crepuscular. And for those who may need a reminder, would you tell us the differences between each and give us some references? What kinds of animals would be included in each category? Sure. I think, you know, this is the issue that really drove me to write the book, which is my concern for animals, for wildlife, for the environment. So it means a lot to me. And I think that when we think about light pollution, when we think about artificial light at night, the misuse and overuse, what we're really talking about when it comes to wildlife is um, the destruction of habitat. It's uh, nocturnal habitat that is being destroyed. I, I sometimes call it the bulldozer of the night. We have more than 60% of invertebrate species, so insects especially, that are purely nocturnal. And we have 30% of vertebrate species that are nocturnal. And then so many other species are crepuscular, that is that they rely on dawn and dusk for their eating and moving and mating and getting around. They're living, essentially. I say in the book, you know, that at night, the people go inside into their boxes to watch their boxes and the wild world comes alive. Because I really think that wildlife recognizes that humans don't like the dark and that it's a a space that is safer and more secure for them. Well, while we're sleeping, or while most of the human world is uh, is asleep, what's happening in the world around us that is keeping biodiversity alive? Well, all sorts of things. I mean, I think that animals, I'll give you an example. People have probably seen a new streetlight go in or a new store built and a sign go up and how that attracts, especially in summertime, lots and lots of insects. You see them see them swirling around. And we've just, again, kind of thought, well, that's just normal. It is what it is. Nothing to think about. 
But what scientists have found is that what we're seeing there is actually the light is basically vacuuming those insects up out of the ecosystem. And for a little while, it might present a kind of buffet for predators, for birds and bats and that kind of thing. You know, it's easy pickings with all those insects swirling around. But what scientists have found is that after a while, after a few years of that, the effect of the light in that ecosystem is to suck all that protein, all those insects out of the ecosystem. And that has effects up and down the food chain. So everything that depends on that protein for its life is suffering because of the light's effect on those insects. Now, at night as well, you may have mating going on, I would guess, pollinating. Sure, yeah, all those things, pollinating, mating, hunting, (laughs) migrating. One of my favorite pollinators are are the bats that pollinate the saguaro cactus down in uh, Tucson, down in in Arizona there. We forget that the night is full of life and uh, full of important things happening for us. I really loved in the book that you speak up for some of the most maligned of creatures. I think sometimes where folks are ready to wipe out every insect when the vast majority of them really are of help and are allies of humans. And uh, and in the book, you do speak a bit about the bat and about a moth or just about moths. And why should human beings, maybe can you address that? Why, why should we be more careful and why should we care about non-human denizens? of this planet? Well, there's lots and lots of reasons. I mean, I think that for me and for lots of folks, you know, these species, uh, these creatures have a right to life just like we do. But if we want to think about how they benefit us, we certainly can talk about that as well. You take something like bats, for example, which are these marvelous, amazing creatures that do us essentially no harm and do us so much good in terms of of pollination and especially in terms of eating mosquitoes, eating pests, that kind of thing. There was a study that came out just a couple of years ago that estimated that the least amount of money bats save the U.S. U.S. agriculture a year is $3 billion. And depending on how you add things up, it could be as much as $60 billion a year just from bats alone. The same thing is true with moths, for example. You mentioned, as you mentioned, you know, the vast majority of insects, and certainly this is true with moths, are beneficial to us. Moths are pollinators as well. And we're learning, we hear a lot about bees these days and pollination. Moths also pollinate a lot of the fruits, for example, and flowers that we enjoy. So, you know, it's kind of interesting when we think about butterflies. I think most people have a pretty positive view of butterflies. They think they're beautiful and they're happy to see them. But when we see moths at night, we have a different perspective and we might even be quick to squish them, for example. And they're really just butterflies of the night. They're doing all the same things that butterflies do during the day. And they're quite beautiful, too, if you look at them closely. So I would encourage everyone to take a pause the next time they see a moth or a nighttime insect or certainly a bat and realize how important these creatures are to us and obviously to themselves, to the world. Would you share just uh, the story of the Luna moth? Yeah, the Luna moth is an amazing creature. It's a a beautiful creature and it only lives for a little while. If people don't know what they look like, they're pretty large um, moths with beautiful wings and with these long, uh, kind of a long tail. And uh, what's really remarkable about them is that they're, they're born and they mate 
and then that's it. They don't have any other real function, except as I say, as I kind of muse in the book, I think they just are here to make the world more beautiful. They stick around for a while after they mate. One guy described it to me that they are sort of like the wind up rubber band airplanes that folks might know that, you know, once the propeller stops, they die. They don't live a long time, but while they're here, they add to the beauty of the world. I think I mentioned in an earlier conversation with you that I am here at Grand Canyon National Park and I'm always delighted to see the great joy and on the faces of uh, both adults and, and children as they have their first encounter, uh, for many of them, of creatures that, that in urban settings are just absent. And I noticed in the book that you spoke about Travis Longcore of the Urban Wildlands Group in Los Angeles. And, and when he would ask his students to name three kinds of breakfast cereals or three TV sitcoms, every hand of every student would be raised, but ask them to name three species of birds on campus or three plants outside the door, and they're absolutely lost. And the conclusion that he reached was that unless we pay attention to nature in the places where people live, there will be no constituency for nature where people don't live wonder if you could uh, just elaborate on that, why you chose to share that. Well, I think it gets at, you know, what I talk a lot about in the book, which is the firsthand experience of nature um, in general. And, you know, with me, the night sky or the natural night, I think that the reason I certainly and, and lots of people, I think, are care so deeply about the about animals, about the environment, is that we had a firsthand experience of them when we were kids. I'm at my family's cabin in northern Minnesota right now. It was my parents and grandparents built it when I was when I was two. So I've been coming here for, you know, more than forty years. I've had a firsthand experience with a real night sky and with a real darkness, hearing, you know, the loons out on the lake and seeing the fireflies and the dragonflies and the moths and hearing the wolves back in the woods and all these things. And I think, you know, that's how as I say in the book, oftentimes, you know, that kind of experience imprints on us when we're, when we're little kids. And if we don't have that experience, if we grow up in a city without a firsthand experience of things, we probably won't care about it when we, or I guess I would just, you know, be optimistic. I'll say we would be less likely to care about it when we get older. And, and that, for those of us who, you know, this matters to those of us who care about the environment because, you know, these are folks who are going to be voting. These are folks who are going to be deciding with us what's important. And if people don't think that animals, the environment, wildlife are important, we're going to be in the small minority. Paul, can you offer some suggestions on how we can impart to those who are in places where there is no brilliant night sky, where they are removed from wildlife, how do we convey to them how important this is when they do not see these things and may not have the opportunity to see these things? Well, it's a good question. I think that a lot of good people are trying to figure out how to do that. Again, the first thing I think is to try to give people a firsthand experience. So if that's maybe in a park or in a, a natural history museum or down by a river somewhere or something like that, there are in every city, thankfully, there are still scraps of wildness. There's a lot of literature right now, a lot of nature writing, for example, my field that tries to help people become aware of the nature around them. Um, we are surrounded, even if we don't think we are. I think, you know, specifically to the night sky, 
a lot of cities have planetariums, and that's a really wonderful way to get you know young people, especially, but all of us interested in what a real night looks like is to go to the planetarium. But I think it's that firsthand experience with nature that really has, it's hard to put a price tag on it because I think it has effects on us that we, we don't maybe even realize when it's happening. Could you, as we're drawing to a close here, share just maybe a couple of success stories of communities who have made a difference in, uh, in the attempt to bring back the night sky? Sure. You know, the uh, International Dark Sky Association in Tucson is doing wonderful work. They have a program where they have what are called dark sky communities, um, dark sky cities, dark sky areas where they work with places to change their lighting so that they reduce the lighting and then they recognize those places. There are cities like Tucson and uh, Flagstaff that have lighting ordinances that keep the light level lower. And those give us, you know, everybody an example of what can be done in other places. There are lots of towns in uh, Europe, especially, but in the U.S. as well, that are choosing to turn their streetlights down or turn them off after like midnight or one o'clock in the morning to save energy. And They've found that actually reduces crime, usually, rather than uh, does anything to raise it. And then you have examples like uh, Paris, France, where I spend time in the book and talk about how they work really hard. They've relit the city over the last 30 years to create an atmosphere of beauty and romance at night, which is quite remarkable. And they do it. I was just talking about this with somebody the other day, that they do that now. The latest lighting plan for Paris wants to keep all that wonderful atmosphere, that beauty of the city of light, and cut energy use by 30%, and they, they're sure they can do it. So places like that are leading the way as well. It's really an issue that we can tackle, that we know what to do. We just have to become aware of the problem and start taking care of it. Are there organizations that you would suggest listeners contact for more information? Yeah, absolutely. The Dark Sky Association, which is at darksky.org, is a wonderful resource. You can learn all about anything we've talked about today. They have good information there. Also, I think your listeners will appreciate knowing about an organization out of Toronto called FLAP, which is uh, the Fatal Light Awareness Program. And they have as their main mission to protect birds at night. Uh, We have more than 450 species of birds that migrate at night in North America. And these birds are drawn off course by our lights. Um, They're drawn into our cities. It really has a serious effect on, on night migrating birds. So FLAP is a great organization as well. Yeah, those would be probably the two that I would mention. Fabulous. Well, we need to draw our time together, sadly, I say this, and I wonder if we might turn to the final page of your book where you share a poem by Wendell Berry. Would you recite that for us and and maybe share your final lament and then some words of encouragement? This is a poem by Wendell Berry called To Know the Dark. To go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. I think that, you know, for me, I use that poem as my epigraph at the beginning of the book and then come back to it again at the end because it speaks to me about, again, how important darkness is to the wild world, to the world that blooms and sings, which was my main motivation And the more I learn about darkness, the more I learn about night. I just keep thinking how special and beautiful it is. I would encourage everyone who can to get out at night and start to 
appreciate how beautiful and important darkness is. And folks really do need to sit for a bit outside. One of the things I think I've learned is that you don't just go outside and suddenly see the sky. You really have to let your eyes adjust because we're not accustomed to being out there when it really is dark. So it may take about 20 minutes or more before you really begin to see what's overhead. And it is, uh, if you were in a place like I am here at Grand Canyon, it is one of the most uh, mesmerizing and and joy-filled experiences that you'll ever have. Well, the uh, book that you've written, The End of Night, is available for purchase on Amazon and at other locations, and there will be a link on the blog that accompanies this program. I wonder, Paul, if there's anything else that uh, you would want to add before we, we do close out our time. Well, I would just say that, you know, The End of Night is a book of creative nonfiction. It's a book of stories. It's me going out at night with really wonderful people and it's designed to be a good read. It's uh, not a textbook. It's not just hard science. And it's not just astronomy. Night is full of life and full of beauty. And I'd encourage folks to really start to savor it. Thank you so much, Paul, for being with us today. I really do believe your book to be of critical importance. There is so much that we lose when uh, when we do not have a, a truly dark night. And so I really would encourage listeners to uh, pick up a copy of the book. It is wonderfully illuminating. And uh, <laughs> in our time together, I'm, I'm grateful for the way... Paul has opened our eyes to how important, how important it is to bring back the night. And if folks have any questions or comments about today's show, I'd invite you to email me at the address you'll find in my On the Road blog. And as always, I hope you'll join us next time as we head out On the Road with Mac and Molly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.